get some of the references. Uh, just to prime the pub guys thinking about some of the issues uh, that we'll be looking at this evening. So to start with, let me show you some artefacts that you might not have seen before, especially if you're on the younger end uh, this evening. The first one is this. I mean, Richard showed us some old things this morning. This, oh, that's one of the downsides. This is a cassette tape. And uh, it was, oh, it was very tricky to use. You had to sort of wind it up and wind it back and you couldn't just pick tracks. This is something else from uh, an ancient artifact. Here we go, straight from the 20p shop because I couldn't go and get my own copy from my mum. It's a VHS tape. Uh, they were very popular. Again, same sort of problems. You take, get chewed up. Uh, it was very difficult to use. You couldn't just fast forward in the way that you can uh, now and go to particular scenes. Then, look, look, there you go. See the tape in there? There we go. Now those things, they're a bit old. They're a bit naff really, aren't they? But does the fact that something's old mean that it's outdated? Mean that it's naff, that it's of no use anymore? Does the fact that something's from a long time ago mean that it no longer has any relevance and is actually less likely to be true? So this evening we're going to ask those questions of the Bible. We're going to look at it thinking about how someone with those sorts of questions would approach this, with an eye to answering those kind of questions. I often think people are mistaken in what they're claiming, for a start, uh, given that other faiths and religions have holy books and make claims about them. So let's start by defining terms and clarifying the claims that we're making. So first of all, what is the claim that we're making? I've suddenly remembered I haven't put my PowerPoint on. Um, <laughs> the claim that we're making is that the Bible is the message that God has communicated to the world. He did it through human authors in uh, various different contexts and in different ways. We don't believe that it dropped from the sky. We don't believe that it was dictated by an angel like Muslims claim the Quran was. Yet the claim that this book, the Bible, is actually God's message to humanity. And as such, it carries the authority of God. It's the authority on all matters and the way that God has told us how we can enjoy a relationship with him on into eternity. And in the claims it makes, it's infallible. It's always right. So then, whether we can trust the Bible really matters. Because if you think about it, if we claim it's the authority, it's the place that we go to to find out about who we are, what our world is and what God is like, that it really matters if it's true. Because our creator, we're claiming, has communicated with us. He's told us why we're here. He's told us what life is all about. And that's a question that so many people have. And that's an answer that we believe we have as Christians in the word. But there are a few problems that people have with that claim. First of all, the problem people often have is that we claim this is true of a book. It's a book. And people say, well, you can write what you like in a book. Why couldn't God provide some stronger evidence? People look down on books because, you know, you've got all sorts of books that have made all sorts of claims over the years. I could write a book that a man walked on water, but I would just be making it up. But a video of a man walking on the water, well, that would be something, wouldn't it? Thing is, though, videos can be fake now, can't they? Photographs can be doctored. Even if Jesus came today and we had video of Jesus walking on water or rising from the dead, I imagine we faced exactly the same problems. Most people would not believe it. 
I suspect most people would think that it was faked or that it was special effects or something like that. So really, whatever evidence you're sort of looking for there, you could have it right in front of you and still not believe. And I can sort of understand that. I mean, did you see the uh, aliens last month? Aliens, sorry, in inverted commas. Uh, last month on the news, anyone see that? No? I did have a picture, but I put it up. They look sort of, they've got these uh, alien mummies, apparently, that they found in Mexico. And uh, I used to be really into aliens and the X-Files and all that when I was, that's something else that belongs to a bygone era. Um, but I became to the conclusion quite a while ago that they don't exist. So when I saw these pictures of aliens being handled and sort of being shown and all the rest of it, the first thought that went through my head, and I imagine quite a lot of people's heads, is, ooh, wonder how long it's going to be until they're discovered as fakes. I wonder how long until we find out it's just been a big conspiracy and it's all a big hoax. Now, to a believer in aliens, they would be proof. They'd be like, oh, look at this. You can see it right in front of you. But to me, it was just a curiosity. It's not changed my life. I don't think they're real. And many people take that view with the Bible. That's one of the things that we have to overcome. So a book might seem unimpressive, but in its defence though, whatever you've got, people make what they will of it. Books do though at least provide a more permanent record than it just being passed by uh, word of mouth. It means there's less chance of it being changed over time because you can look back at older versions. And actually if we do that, we can look back and see with confidence that what we have today in the Bible is what was written back then. Having it written down actually helps with that. We can show that that game of Chinese whispers that sometimes people mention hasn't happened. So that's the first problem, it's a book. The second problem is what the book claims to be. Now the Bible, as I said, claims to be the ultimate authority on everything. It claims to be God's view on things. But in doing so, it kind of gives itself a catch-22. And I've gone through these discussions with people who don't believe the Bible before. If the Bible is the ultimate authority on all things, to what authority do we go to to prove it? Do you see my problem? Imagine Wikipedia, that font of all knowledge. Uh, Wikipedia said de definitively that what the Bible claims to be is true. And we say, right, we believe the Bible's true because Wikipedia says it. Do you see the problem? You're actually saying that Wikipedia is a higher authority than the Bible. But you're claiming that the Bible is the highest authority. So doing that actually would sort of disprove you believe what you say you believe. And so from that though comes something really important. The point is that if the Bible itself claims to be the evidence, if the Bible itself claims to be true, then certainly one of the places we must look is from the Bible itself. Because if we ignore what the Bible says, if we look for concrete proof elsewhere, then it shows actually we've made our mind up before we start that the Bible's not an authority. That it's not what it claims to be, and therefore we're looking in other places. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't look for evidence elsewhere, but in the end, when you can sort of go through these things, often the only thing that evidence from elsewhere will be able to show you is that the Bible is, in, is old, and that it says now what it did then. And you can do that. You can go and show that the Bible is a very, very old book and that it hasn't changed. But what you can't do from that necessarily is prove that what it says is true. You can prove it's old because if you go to Manchester, why you'd want to do that, I don't know. 
But if you wanted to go to Manchester, you can go and, if I have a PowerPoint, you'll see it, uh, a document called P52, you can go look at in uh, the Rylands Library in Manchester. And it's a, it's a very small document, very small bit of papyrus. And it's dated the end of the first century or early part of the second, depending on who you ask. But all agree that it's very old, about 100 AD. And what it's got is part of John 18. And all scholars agree that the John's Gospel was the last Gospel to be written. So by having that fragment, we know that all the Gospels must be written earlier. It's also Egyptian in origin, so it would mean that time enough had to have passed for that text to have got to Egypt and been disseminated there as well, which adds another few years to when it was written, if you like, going backwards. The Gospels are also dated later than most of the letters in the New Testament, which again pushes the date of those further back and closer to the time that Jesus was around. What this means is that really, if you look at the evidence, if you look at the textual evidence, the New Testament was written around the time that it claimed to be. And that's just from one papyrus. You can go to London. Again, why you want to do that, don't know. <laughs> but you can view ones that are only a few years afterwards. I've been to London and seen them with my own eyes. Copies of Gospels. There are thousands upon thousands of papyrus from the first few hundred years that we can see that show us what the Bible said back there. And actually, if you didn't have any of the New Testament, you'd have quotes enough from the early church fathers to be able to reconstruct nearly all uh, of the New Testament. I was reading someone earlier who tried this out from just the first and second, I think, no, up to the third century. And they've managed to get the whole New Testament apart from 11 verses, just from quotations from church fathers. So we really can date it that far back. Now, all of that is important, but again, it won't tell you if it's true. You see, it's the sort of Harry Potter problem. Uh, Harry Potter uh, sold 450 million copies worldwide. So I'm pretty sure that if this world is still around in 2,000 years, there'll be fragments of those books that will survive the ravages of war, fire, flood, uh, and, you know, whatever we're reading in those days, whatever the Kindle's been updated to, we can still re-find it in books. But, we may be able to find, at that point, that it's 2,000 years old, we may be able to find who wrote it, when it was written, but it won't answer the question, is it true? Now, of course, with Harry Potter, it's not true, we will agree on that, however old it might be. But I'm sure in 4,013, it still won't be true. It'll just be working it out uh, as we go back. But we can work out it's old, but what we're saying is not just that the Bible is old, but that it's true. So why trust the Bible? Why trust it uh, that it's true and not just old? Well, let me tell you something that convinced me. I haven't always believed the Bible. It's really good to speak from your own experience in these kind of things, I find. I haven't always believed the Bible. I'm not from a Christian family. I wasn't brought up to believe the Bible. And three things really convinced me from the Bible um, that it's true. The first one is the prophecies of the Bible, uh, especially the prophecies about Jesus. Passages like Isaiah 53, which speak about Jesus' death. For many years, this passage was believed to have been added by zealous Christians who somehow managed to insert it into the Jewish Bible. This was blown out of the water with the discovery in uh, 1946 of the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
you've not heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are a set of scrolls preserved in caves around the Dead Sea. And the scroll with the passage Isaiah 53 on has been carbon dated by skeptics to be between 355 to 100 BC. So it's at least 100 years before Jesus was born. There are also 22 more copies of the book of Isaiah found, and all the ones that had, it, that, had that section, it was there. Neither had that chapter changed over time. Actually, it was incredibly close. They only found one word that might possibly have changed the word light. And even then, it was pretty clear that that's what the word was. The scribes who copied these texts believed that they were handling the very word of God. If they made a mistake, they would throw the whole page away. If there was a particular wording or spelling that was a bit unusual, they would make a note at the side to show that they'd seen that that was how it was in the text that they were copying. And that explains why so little changed in between, because the next copy of Isaiah after those ones dates from around 1000 AD. So in a thousand years of being copied, it changed next to nothing. Things like three characters might be in question in that chapter. Those prophecies about Jesus, they were one of the things that convinced me that that was true. The Bible says all, all sorts of things as well about him. Things that were beyond Jesus' control. For example, which tribe he would come from. That he would be a descendant of King David which he was through Mary's mother and Joseph, Joseph, his adopted father, that he would be born in Bethlehem, which was really a very small town, little more than 500 to 1,000 people around the time Jesus was around. I mean, Otley's not a big place, but we're 15 to 30 times the size of Bethlehem back then. So think about that. The idea that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah would come there. All these things happened before he was even born. He couldn't decide those things. He couldn't manipulate them. It also predicted things about his death, about which he had little control. That he would be betrayed for money. That the money would be used to buy a field. That his hands and feet would be pierced, but not a bone of his body would be broken. That he would be buried with rich people. That he would rise from the dead. And that's without the prediction that Jesus made in his own lifetime. Now, for obvious reasons, they were written down after the event, but the fact still stands that his disciples claimed that he had said those things, and that he equally taught them not to deceive people. So those predictions were there, and that was one of the things that convinced me about the truth of the Bible. The second thing was the honesty of the Bible. Um, the way it all hangs together, but also the way it brings true. It hangs together despite being written by about 40 different people over a long period of time. And there's so much stuff in there that points to Jesus. I mean, we saw it this morning, didn't we, from the book of Judges, if you were around this morning. But along with that, there's also a realism to the Bible. It doesn't airbrush stuff. So think about the, the heroes of the Bible that we know. Abraham marries his half-sister as a son by his wife's maid. And then also, as questionable things happen with his wife, with the king of Egypt, as he basically lies about who she is to get himself out of trouble, she nearly ends up in his harem. Moses murders an Egyptian in cold blood. He initially refuses to go to Pharaoh when God tells him to, and he never makes it to the promised land because he claimed credit for things that God had done afterwards. King David was an adulterer. Samson was a womanizer who breaks his vows. 
The twelve disciples spend all their time squabbling about who is the greatest among them. They don't believe Jesus when he says he will die and rise again, and they basically look like idiots for a lot of the time, with such a simple understanding of the way things are. Peter denies he even knows Jesus three times when Jesus is on his way to die. All these things, why would you include them if they weren't true? Why would the Jews make their founding father, Abraham, do so many questionable things? Why would Christians make their leaders look like idiots? It doesn't make sense unless it's true. Now, if you read a book like the Quran, which was written hundreds of years later, it misses most of those stories out. It airbrushes them. That's what you would expect if the stories had been changed or made up. You wouldn't expect that the other way round. You wouldn't put in those things if they weren't true. Why make your own origin stories worse? So the honesty of the Bible really struck me and still strikes me. And then finally, before we stop for food, the effect of the Bible. The final thing that convinced me was actually the effect that the Bible had on people that I knew. I was a young teenager and I saw the lives of the people who read it and they put it into practice. Their lives were different from me. I saw people living it out in the little church I'd started going to in Driglington. Now, don't get me wrong, lots of books change lives. I completely agree with that. But not like this book. This book, well, it's turned murderers to missionaries, slave owners to abolitionists, haters into lovers of their very enemies. It's no understatement to say that the Bible has turned the world upside down. And it's partly hard for us to see, because actually we live after it's done so much of its turning upside down. We live in a culture that's, that's taken stuff from the Bible. We don't see how much of an effect that it's had. But when I saw in the personal lives of people living it out, I saw that people, uh, that it did something powerful. So the effect of the Bible was another bit of evidence that convinced me that the Bible is true. And that is something that still happens today. You can see it. Hopefully we can see it in each other, can't we? As we follow the Lord Jesus. So the Bible is not an ancient relic like my VHS collection. It's actually a living thing that still affects lives today, thousands of years after it was written. The question I'd most like to ask people when they ask me about the Bible is, have you read it? That's a good one to ask. Would you be up for reading it with me? If you believe it's a powerless, outdated old book, then what have you got to lose? On the other hand, if it's a living, active, life-changing book, then you've got an awful lot to gain. So that is basically what I would do at a lunch bar talk. That was basically the sort of structure of it. I think I had an extra section on Old Testament laws. But that's just some, some of the ways, some of the ways you can go at that question. We're going to sing again, then we're going to eat. But while we're eating, why not write down some of those questions about the Bible that I haven't answered there or stuff you want more clarification on? Or just things that you struggle with in understanding the reliability of the Bible or things in the Bible. Uh, I'll take questions from the floor too, but writing them down would be a little bit easier. So let's say you'll notice again a theme, uh, powerful in making us wise for salvation, and then we'll eat. Father God, thank you uh, for your word, the Bible. Father, pray that you'd help us now as we consider these questions together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, the Bible, this is what it says, the Bible is written by men for men. 
how to reply. Well, first of all, I would say, I would assume that's meaning people, not that it's not the sort of feminist question. It is the feminist. Oh, it is the feminist question. <laughs> I'll come back to that one. <laughs> okay. It says, hi, Chris. Thanks for your talk. Would you be able to talk about how the spirit attests to the truth of the scriptures to the believer, please? And how would you counter the claim of false Christian groups, e.g. Mormons, who might feasibly claim the, uh, the self-attestation of their scriptures? Yes. So if you go and talk to a Mormon, um, they will normally finish with the same thing and say, go and read the Book of Mormon and see if what it says feels true. That's normally what they would say to you. Pray to God and ask him to show you and reveal it to you. That's not quite exactly the same thing as what we, we mean when we talk about the spirit attesting to the truth of scriptures. It's not just that you would feel something inside you, but it, it doesn't engage the intellect as well. Uh, I tried challenging a Mormon on it. I, I went away, I prayed to God, I read a bit of the Book of Mormon, I felt nothing. So I said, well, by, that, by your reckoning of whether it's true, if it's true by how it feels, then it's not true. And they didn't really know what to say to that. So if we just go off how it, how it makes us feel, if we go off what does it give us a warm, fuzzy feeling inside, well, that can just as easily disprove a text as it can prove it. So I would want to say, well, yes, the, the scriptures, the spirit does help us understand them, which again helps us in our believing that they're true, because when we can understand them in, in a clear way, that helps us know that they're true. And the Spirit helps us to live them out as well, and prove their authenticness that way. So it's not just the Spirit sort of makes us feel something about the Scriptures, but I think he does do that, but that in and of itself, it doesn't prove it either way. That's what I would say. I think that's what I would say. So the Spirit does help us, but we can't just say, oh yeah, go away and pray if it's true. Because I don't think actually that, that just says, well, the, the one that decides whether it's true that is in here, rather than it being actually is it objectively true out there. As a child at Sunday school, I was encouraged to learn Bible verses and commit them to memory. Songs with Bible lyrics also help me remember scripture. How can we help adults as well as children learn the Bible verses today? I think it's important to have words quickly accessible in our minds. Do you? I do. Um, and I would say that songs are not just for kids. I have learned more Bible verses, though, um, through listening to uh, songs that we play for our kids than probably any other way, because our brains are wonderfully um, worked to be able to remember tunes and music. You go into a nursing home and you start singing old songs. They will sing along with you. They stick in your brain. I learned songs about the Bible when I was a non-Christian. I can still remember them word for word. So don't, don't put down songs as just being for kids. Get them in your car. There's, there's some really good ones I could recommend. Uh, there is the Verses Project, which do Bible verses set to, to music. Um, you can download an app on your phone called Fighter Verses by John Piper. I think it costs 79p. Um, and you can, it gives you, uh, how would you describe it, boys? The, the, the old style ones, that you, they're, sort of, they're, not, they're not quite as catchy. But they're there, and they're there word for word, aren't they? And then there's the more sort of trendy ones, aren't there? We always give you two on that. Um, but either way, whatever you find helpful, if you're not into the, I'm not particularly into the trendy ones, but I find the other ones not so easy to remember, do that. If that helps you, do it. Get them in your car. I used to um, put scripture verses on uh, when I was jogging back in the day. 
Um, the weird thing is now, whenever I, I, I'd always start at the same place. And then now, I used to run past the boys' school. Every time I would go past the school, I'd be in the same place in the scriptures. And it was every good gift um, is from above, uh, coming down from the Father of lights. And every time I drop them off at school now, I get that verse in my head. Because that was what I, where I was in the... That's if you put them in your car and you drive to work every day. You could, that, you know, you get to that same bit of traffic jam every day. And it's the same Bible verse. Maybe it's maybe good to have one about patience uh, at that point. You know, songs are brilliant. Um, the Fighter Versus app gives you quizzes to do. It gives you fill-in-the-gap exercises. It gives you all sorts of different things just to help it get in your head. Um, and it's got loads and loads of... That's, that's my favourite place to go to um, for learning Bible, Bible verses. Absolutely get them in your head. Um, do you remember during lockdown we did a Bible verse every month? Um, from, uh, what were they? Um, see Family Worship. That's the one, See Family Worship. They've got some brilliant ones and they've got actions as well if you're really into that. <laughs> um, but they do CDs and they give you two CDs when you buy it, the same album, so you can listen to one and you pass them to a friend. So that's how we got hold of one first of all. Um, Debbie at church passed us a CD and we bought most of them now. And they're just Bible verses set to music. That's all they are. So, yeah, find a style you like. But I, I'd say, yes, yeah, I, I personally find music very helpful. But there are those other things on that app to do it. And you can get other apps are available. Um, but we, we're a great time. Yeah. I can still remember one of the memory verses that okay. we taught back in like, before this, we moved here. John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave is one and only survived. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but know about the world might be saved from him. I still remember that because he taught us that. <laughs> There you go. There's your plug. <laughs> so yes, absolutely get it in your brain, get it in your head, and it will help you um, in times when you need it. Isn't it great to have it in your head when you don't have one on, you, on yourself? What other historical evidence is there that Jesus died and rose again? So if we look outside the Bible, um, I'll give you, well, let's, see, let's, let's go with, with two. One, one helps to say that there are claims around the time that Jesus rose from the dead. So if you look at historians around the time, they start writing about um, things that are in the Bible. Um, so Josephus writes about Jesus, that's a passage that's debated by some, but they don't debate that he writes about John the Baptist, for example, who's in the Bible. He writes about James, Jesus, John's brother, who's there. Um, there are sort of historical things you can look to to show that Jesus was a real person and that something was said about him. Uh, I was reading this afternoon that apparently one, of, one interesting thing is they found uh, a few years back, oh, it's from this book, sorry, I should recommend the book, uh, Josh McDowell, New Evidence and Man's Verdict, great book on reliability of the Bible for the first section. Um, this book speaks about a, uh, a tablet that was found in Nazareth um, about the end of the first century that had banned people, it was, it was increasing the, um, Increasing the fine on people who uh, took things from graves, which was an interesting one. And apparently it was a regional thing, but basically you couldn't, uh, you couldn't grave rob, take bodies from graves. It's not proof in itself, but it is interesting that at the end of the first century, when we know that the lie about Jesus was that his body had been stolen, uh, that actually one of the things that was happening was the authorities were clamping down on people stealing bodies. 
Again, it doesn't prove the resurrection, but it proves that some people were claiming that at the time. I would say my big proof for, um, historical proof for Jesus' death and resurrection is the church. So the church starts, and it starts with a very small group of people, again, it's attested by history, there was a small group of people who believed that Jesus died and rose again. The things that they met to do reminded them of Jesus' death, things like communion, which speak of Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. That's why we have bread and wine. Baptism, which speaks of dying and rising again. And they associated that at the time with Jesus' death and resurrection. They're the very early things in the church. They're right there from the beginning. If Jesus didn't rise again, if Jesus didn't die and rise, where did those things come from? What a bizarre thing to start. What a bizarre thing to remember. If Jesus really was just a good teacher, then surely the big thing would be his teaching. We'd all be thinking about that, wouldn't we? That's what would be being uh, passed on, that the early church meant to remember his death. They met on the first day of the week, because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So you had Jews who'd, who'd previously always met on a Saturday, Suddenly, they're now meeting on a Sunday. Why would they do that if Jesus hadn't died and rose again? And then obviously the power of the apostles to be able to preach that across the world and even die for that. Well, again, if it's not true, then why would they claim that that happened? Why would they be prepared to die? And again, history notes that these people died, that they were martyred. And the first few centuries are all Christians being martyred. Nobody disputes that. Why would they go through that if Jesus hadn't died and rose again? So I can't point you to a sort of specific text that says, but then you've got exactly the same problems as you've got with the Bible. That people would say, well, it's been made up, it's been added, it's been... But I can point you to people that lives were changed by it. I can point you to the fact that 2,000 years later we're still going. I think that's incredible proof of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that, that's where I would go with that. So there is proof that Jesus lived. There are proofs that there were claims made about his death and resurrection, but I think the church is one of those big proofs that it's actually true. And you can look at that historically as it, as it grew. Okay, going to move on, but there's more of those in, in, uh, in this book if you want to look for sort of historical, other people who talked about that at the time. Okay, why do some Bibles have books that are not in the ESV, NIV, um, King James? Uh, how come? Um, so I think we're talking there about the Apocrypha, the Deuto-Canonical uh, books. I, I thought I might get this question, so I looked at this up this afternoon. Um, so there is in uh, Roman Catholic Bibles and uh, some other uh, Bibles that you can get, there is a section in the middle that we refer to as the Apocrypha, the, the um, hidden books. And uh, the reason that they are not there in um, the Bibles that we've got is that when they were, uh, certainly at the time, around the time the Old Testament was being established, they were not accepted as books that were God's word. So the Jews didn't have those books accepted in their canon, if you like. And also the church, even really early people like Jerome, when he translated the uh, Bible into Latin, which was one of the first translations, he only reluctantly translated the Apocrypha. He had to sort of be convinced because he said that he didn't believe that it was God's word. Um, the Roman Catholic Church established it as canon only in the 1500s at the Council of Trent, or it's 16th, well, one of them, around that time, uh, just after the Reformation, the Counter Reformation. 
That's when that was established then as they said that this is scripture. But historically, the church has not established doctrine from those books. There are things in those books that you would find uncomfortable, like prayers for the dead. Um, there are people having their sins forgiven by giving money, um, things like that. So they don't, it doesn't fit with the rest of scripture. I've read the Apocrypha. I decided at some point I should probably do that. It's an interesting read. It gives you some interesting ideas about what people were thinking in between the Testaments, for example, about what was going to happen. But it doesn't have that same, thus says the Lord to it, that the Bible does. It doesn't come across as authoritative. It doesn't claim to be authoritative. So it's an interesting read. The normal thing, for, I think, for the Reformers is that it, it's helpful to read it at some point. It might be beneficial, but we certainly don't accept it as the word of God, as, as scripture. And we don't establish doctrine from it because we don't believe it's got that same authority. Okay? Okay, a common criticism is the Bible is full of contradictions, although I don't know of any. How do we argue against it? I remember uh, when I was a teenager, somebody came to me with this question when I was in sick form and said, the Bible is full of contradictions. And I said, great, I'll give you a pound if you can give me one. And they said, well, I don't know. I said, right, go away. Read a bit of the Bible. Go have a look. See if you're again, thinking, right, go, go read it. Um, I'll give you a pound for every contradiction you find. And actually, that turned into a very few fruitful conversation. Every time I saw him, I said, I've got my pound ready. You, you ready to show me a contradiction? I've read, again, it's helpful to be able to say, I've read the Bible all the way through, and I haven't found a contradiction. There are things that I've found that people would claim are contradictions, but I'm satisfied in my mind that they're sorted out. I think we'd also want to be careful as well. We, we would say that in the original in the original texts, there are no contradictions. So sometimes you do have um, copying errors that have crept in. So a classic example of this is Goliath being killed twice. Don't you ever come across this? You'll get a lot of blank faces. Uh, read Chronicles, and you get uh, an account of somebody who kills Goliath, other than David. And you're like, this is really weird, what's going on here? But in the book of Samuel, in the sorry, but yeah, book of Samuel, um, it clearly says that this is somebody from. Uh, uh, it, it preserves the original reading of the text. So you have. Should look this one up. Um, Beth Lami, um, and it's, it doesn't mean brother of Lami, or does it mean from Bethlehem? And um, one takes it one way, one takes it the other way. It's really clear how you can have a slight change misread it and not. The amazing thing is that the Bible has given us two versions of that story, so we can know that David was only killed once by David, uh, sorry, Goliath was only killed once by uh, King David. But you would say that would be a contradiction. That, that would be one that you could claim, but we can clearly see from the original that, that, that how it came to be that that was, that was there. Another one that's classic is uh, answering a fool according to his folly. Do you do that? Or do you not do that? Well, in Proverbs, it tells you both. But I think that's partly because the book of Proverbs is telling you about what to do in different situations. So if you answer a fool according to his folly, well, this might happen. If you, answer a fool according, if you don't answer a fool according to his folly, then this might happen. So it's not claiming that we should do both, if you know what I mean. It's not contradiction in that sense. And that way, you need to be careful about what the genre of the literature that you're reading. Yes? Well, can I ask one about Judas? I, I didn't include it, but I'm now talking about 
Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. He is contradictory. Um, yeah. So one account seems to say that he tripped and fell in the field of blood and his guts spilled out. It's like this morning, isn't it? Really? But, um, guts spilled out of the floor. Another one says that he hung himself. And the normal way of putting those two together in an understandable way is that he hung himself, the rope broke, and that his guts spilled onto the, the floor. That would be a way of actually both of those things being true. So it might, again, it's one of these things that looks like it could be a contradiction, but again, actually, when you, when you go into it, there are ways that you can understand it. It might not be that that's the way that that works out together, but that would be a way that both Judas does hang himself and he also dies with his guts being spilled out. Both of them agree it was in the field of blood, which is interesting. Uh, how did that story start if Judas hadn't done that? Um, it would seem that they were aware of each other's books, or certainly one was aware of the other. So again, why would you write it differently if you were going to make it sound like this? Um, it's a contradiction. One of the helpful things with the Gospels is, um, well, I remember chatting years ago to a police officer, and they say, if, if you, the time when you're suspicious about eyewitness accounts is not when there's differences, it's when there's no differences. Actually, if you've got two eyewitnesses that say exactly the same thing, you can be virtually certain that it's been rehearsed that they've agreed it together. However, if you get stories that seem like you can fit them together, generally the, the truth is that. You could, if you put them together, you get the truth. And I think that's true with the Gospels. They're telling them from their own perspectives. Um, they gathered eyewitness accounts, and one person's eyewitness might remember Judas's guts being spilled out, so that's something you're gonna forget, is it? Another person might remember that he hung himself, because again, the idea of being cursed for being hung. So, if, you've got, if you're collecting evidence from different people, you're going to get slightly different accounts. But it doesn't mean they're contradictory. Um, if you had one that said uh, Judas uh, died years later uh, you know, somewhere else, that, that I would say would be closer. Whereas these have it in the same place, at the same time, and um, pretty horrific death, which I think you can put together. So that, that's, that's how I've answered the Judas question in the past. Um, and then again, I said, you know, doesn't that point to more again the reliability that actually here we have different witnesses agree? So you, you, you think they're both reliable witnesses? Well, what about the stuff they say about Jesus? Why do they agree on that? Oh yeah, okay, I've got a question straight in front of me, haven't I? Um, yeah, and try and see, see if anyone takes you up on your pound. Okay. Last one before I put it open to the floor, we've still got a few minutes. The Bible is written by men for men. Uh, how to reply? That's something that has actually been said a bit matter. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. The Bible is written by men. Um, the closest you get to a female author, interestingly, is the end of Proverbs. Um, so it tells you that this is King Lemuel with sayings that his mother taught him. And interestingly, the, the Proverbs 31 wife is included in that section. I would love it if that's his mother's advice to King Lemuel about what a, a wife of noble character looks like. That's not, I don't think that's a man saying that, I think that's actually a woman uh, that's given that advice to this King uh, Lemuel. So that's the closest you get to a, a woman writing like it. It is written by men, um, but that doesn't mean that it's only for men. 
or that it carries only a man's perspective on things. Um, so the Bible has female strong characters like Ruth. Um, the Bible has people um, like Elizabeth and Mary. You know, the, there are people in the Bible, Mary Magdalene, uh, in the Bible. If, actually, if you read the old stories, they tend not to have any good female characters, do they? Actually, they, they tend to be the man is the hero and the women sort of, you know, uh, are just sort of secondary characters. The Bible has many women who are involved in, in the storyline. It's not just always from a man's perspective. It's not only telling things about man. I think there are things that have been used. I mean, I think the, the things like the Old Testament laws about um, ceremonial uncleanness with women, that's been misused. Interestingly, it talks about ceremonial uncleanness for men as well, and that's not often quoted. Um, so there are things that we can use in the Bible that make it sound like it's a misogynistic document. But I think actually when you take it all together, I think you see that it's a wonderful um, document that gives value and worth to women. So going back to those resurrection accounts, who is it that Jesus appears to first? Women. In a culture where women's testimony was not accepted in court generally, if it was, say you, I think you can have an unlimited number of women. I think this is right. Though you might want to go over. Certainly, a number of women could give testimony. One man gave testimony, contradicted them, the man was believed. Why would Jesus appear to women? And yet he does. He gives them great. Um, they're the first witnesses of the resurrection above, um, uh, above even the disciples. And if you look, when the disciples abandon him on the cross, you get John following from a distance. The only other people who are with him are women. And again, that is not, they don't have to add that in, if you know what I mean. It's not something that's, you know, it wouldn't have been something that was particularly celebrated at the time to make it sort of PC. It's because men and women are equal in the Bible. And we should expect to see that sort of thing in the Bible, shouldn't we? We should expect to see our equality. We should expect to see our equal dignity and worth. You know, back in Genesis, it's not the woman is a sort of secondary product for man, actually they're created together, aren't they, as, uh, for each other. Man is not complete without woman, and woman comes out of man. There's, there's a mutuality there, which, again, you sort of read the pagan accounts of creation, and it's just not there. The Bible, actually, is way more progressive, if you want that term, than lots of people give it reason for, but it's not because it's trying to be trendy, it's because God's given us uh, equal worth. God's made us all in his image. It's not just the men. And I think it's those kind of things, again, that we sort of miss. Uh, we, we, we believe what our culture sort of tells us and we're a bit embarrassed about bits of the Bible. But actually, it, it, it should be a document that's, that's right, isn't it? It should be a document that's true. Um, there are different roles for men and women in the Bible. That's also controversial. But never di different worth or uh, different dignity for men and women. So I think that, that's where I'd start. And then I'd say, well, which parts of the Bible are you talking about? Could we read them together? Um, why not? You know, the worst they can say is no. Best they can say is you can look at it together and you can look at it. And, and if it is this life-giving document that we've been talking about, living and active, then isn't it wonderful to open it up with people? 
That's why we do evangelistic talks from the Bible. Because actually the Bible can, can penetrate like a sword kind of into the hearts. And that's all I've got for um, questions here. Are there questions from the floor? I've got about two minutes, so I'll really speedily. God advised um, uh, Abraham to offer his only son. Yeah. Abraham had two sons. Yeah. Explain that. Okay. Um, so he calls him your only son, the one whom you love. Um, which is picked up interestingly in, uh, when God speaks to Jesus and calls him his only son. But again, actually, we're adopted as sons, aren't we? So God has more than one son. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which only son, the word there is, is the idea of the beloved one, the, the chosen one, the special one. So it's not making a comment about number, it's making a comment about their relationship together. Um, so obviously, yeah, Abraham has Ishmael, um, but actually Isaac is his, his beloved son, the son of the promise, the only son. I understand the promise. This is a, obviously something that the Muslims bring out. Yeah. Um, but Abraham did love Ishmael as well. Yeah. You know, so. He did. But the, Apart from going down the line of, he is the, you know, the promised one. Yeah. I think, it, well, it's God that says that to Abraham, isn't it? Take your son, your only son, your beloved son, the one whom you love. Um, I want to say, well, that, that's God saying it. So uh, either they're saying that that's not right in the Bible, which is probably what they would say. Um, but it's not Abraham's opinion of his son. That's actually God speaking to Abraham um, and saying this, this is the special one. In terms of God's understanding of where things are going. Isaac is his only son. He's the one that the line is going to go through. He's the one that... But that wouldn't necessarily hold if they say it's a mistake. God didn't say that. Because they're saying yeah. there's an error in the Bible. Yeah. Because it's a question of error. I would probably need to... I'd want to have a look at it again, probably just back in, back in Genesis, just to double check what I'm saying. But I, my understanding is it doesn't necessarily mean only son needn't necessarily mean just that you have one son. Hadn't Ishmael already been sent away? He had, so some people answer it that way in the terms of that he's, he's no longer, um, he's sort of disinherited effectively by being sent away. But my understanding is as well that the, the word there doesn't necessarily mean, um, it's a bit like we use the word firstborn. Um, in the Bible it's not always to do with the one that's born first. It's a position in the family. So you can sell your birthright as firstborn. So Jacob and Esau, that one of them is firstborn. But hang on, the other one was born first. You see what I mean? It's, it's not necessarily to do with what we immediately think it means in that sense. Um, and you could get yourself, that's a contradiction. Someone else born before him. But no, actually, he's, he's counted as the firstborn. But I, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to you on that one. I'll go have a look, a look this week and... I'm quite happy with No, that. no, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really, yeah. I know Rose had a question to do with uh, the Bible being living in... Well, yes, I, I, my comment was more of a comment, really, that the fact that, um, you know, you can have something which is true mm. and correct and is unlikely to change. I'm, unfortunately, I gave the example of a maths textbook, but you know. I think it's one that many people in this room can relate yes, to. Yes, yes. We've got um, a lot of maths, all maths teachers. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but that doesn't make the Bible and the maths textbook, even if that maths textbook has no errors in it, anything on a par because the Holy Spirit, it, it's a living book. Mm. It, and, and the fact that um, when you open it, it's completely different. Mm. And I just wondered whether that came into arguments or comments that you would use when defending the Bible. Defend the Bible? That's well, yeah, no, 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 sorry, no, just my Spurgeon, I would sooner defend a lion. That's <laughs> Spurgeon on um, how do you defend the Bible. But no, exactly that though, the Bible is a lion, if you like. The Bible is uh, a living and active book that changes people's lives. So one of the things that I look to do when I'm talking with an unbeliever is get the Bible open. Um, and there is a school of thought that says, well, non-believers can't understand the Bible, so we, we need to sort of not look at the Bible with them, otherwise, you know, they won't understand it. But actually, we believe, don't we, that this is sharper than any two-edged sword. That actually this is able to make us wise to salvation. So just the idea of, of me, that, that is what is in my head, actually. I want to meet up with somebody and, and read it with them. Because if we believe that this, this can change lives, if we believe this is living and active, which we do, well, we've got them to agree to do something that's going to teach them about Jesus, haven't we? We've got, some, we've got a friend. We're, we're looking at, at this together. We've got a man on the inside, if you like, on, on, on that way. Because we're, we're not just saying, let's talk about things randomly. We're saying, let's open God's word. That's powerful. So we, we can, we can really, even if it, you know, I, I've gone through just one of the Gospels with a friend. And just opened it up with them. And just gone through it bit by bit by bit. And it, it's brilliant just to see Jesus walk off the page into their lives, to be able to, to, to talk about those things together. So I think the very, I, I couldn't do that with a maths textbook. No. It wouldn't have the same effect. <laughs> so not only is it sort of looking at the, it's not only saying that we must look at the Bible, if you like, oh, the, the Bible is true, sorry, the Bible is true. I'm saying actually if we look at the Bible with someone, then that opens that possibility. It doesn't happen every time. I've met with different people who've had different responses. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is a, a silver bullet that, that this is the way to go uh, every single time. But on the other hand, it, the, what we were seeing before is a powerful weapon um, in, our, in our fight, if you like. It to, we are a weapon to rescue people um, by opening up with them. So don't, don't be ashamed of the Bible, don't be embarrassed by the Bible. I think so often we are the ones that have a bit of a hang-up about it, rather than the unbelievers. I think if you just read it with them, actually sometimes you find that, yeah, a lot of the sort of crazy questions go away, and it's suddenly you're talking about who Jesus is, what he's come to do, and what it means to follow him, which is actually what they need to hear. So that, that, would, be, that would be my advice anyway. Okay, our time is up, so I'm going to... Actually, we'll be slightly over, so we won't sing our last hymn, but I will pray. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of the Bible. Father, we pray that you would give us that boldness uh, to open it up to people. Father, pray that you would help us to be equipped to answer those questions, Father. Even if we, the answer is, I'll go away and look at it. Father, help us to be bold to be able to, to talk with people about the Word. And Father, when those questions inevitably come about, why trust the Bible? Help us, uh, Father, to trust it ourselves and to show that in the way that we talk about it, in the way that we live, 
and uh, Father, in the way that we answer those questions. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.